When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Cartoon goalkeepers of the 1900s, defenders who played on one leg for half their career, newspaper diagrams of Roberto Carlos's one good free kick, skulls of Manchester, the midfielder who defined both an entire role and sparked the most boring football debate on the internet forever, the token bloke who was good on a computer game when you were 15, a man with an 8,000 word Wikipedia page, and the big question, Zlatan or Eric? Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés and the Over-Mythologised Eleven. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 251 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and with me for this latest Clichés Eleven is Charlie Eccleshare, first of all. How's it going? Very well. How are you? Yeah, not bad. I did see that um, in the Athletic Podcast Network's second best long-running quiz format, the Intertotally Cup, You've been drawn against Michael Cox. I know. We're both really not happy about it. We, we're we pushing for some sort of seeding system. Yeah. Um, last year's runner-up. Should have won it. Still not over it. Against uh, a two-time former winner in the first round. Feels a bit much. It's like Real Madrid versus Napoli in the first round of the European Cup in 1987-88, isn't it? Very similar. Yeah. Um, speaking of Michael Cox, here he is. How's it going, Michael? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Yeah, my, uh, my first round draw last time in the Intertotally was against the man who beat Charlie in the final. So I've had dreadful luck two years in a row, but there you go, never mind. Dark forces at play mm. there, I fear. <laughs> Did you know, Coxie, little stat for you, as of today, 37.5% of your cliches appearances have been selecting themed 11s. So it's very much <laughs> your speciality, isn't it? No banter, but you, you've got, you can reel off a list of names. <laughs> yeah, I, I know lots of players from 15 years ago. That really is my, my only quality. <laughs> it's basically that and quizzes for Michael on this podcast, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The headline stuff, that's the main thing. But um, your presence is valued. Um, let's do an adjudication panel, first of all. A couple of topical things from this week I want to get off my chest, at least. This first one came from Patrick Davy and Jamie Johnson. This is Liverpool's in-house commentator as they put their fourth goal past Leeds on Monday night. Jota joins in. Will Gakpo need him? Salah in Oceans. Salah with a lovely finish. And we recognise this Liverpool team though, don't we now? It's got swagger, it's got a smile, it's got confidence and they are ruthlessly putting Leeds to bed here. Charlie, you can put a game to bed (laughs) and you can put a team to the sword but you can't put a team to bed. (laughs) Certainly not ruthlessly. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite evocative in a way. The the, the, idea, kind of like, 
let's put you to bed. Just sort of taking them off, ushering them. I mean, also, I thought you were going to become the oceans as well. Yeah, that's what I just, thought. Alighting the of space, just oceans. He's in oceans. Yeah, yeah. I'm all right with that because I think in-house commentary is allowed to be a bit looser, lazier with their delivery because they know it's not going out to a mainstream audience. I think it's a bit more relatable, maybe. So oceans, I can, I can handle, but. But the problem is, um, as Jamie Johnson sort of rationalises in his message to me, Michael, he says, I can't quite visualise being ruthlessly put to bed. Being put to the sword is unpleasant and something you'd struggle to avoid. By contrast, going to bed is actually quite pleasant and something I'm often (laughs) eager to do. The key word is clearly ruthless here. But what does it mean to be ruthlessly put to bed? No hot water bottle, no bedtime story. Can you and the team settle this? Does this bit of footballing language work? Or should it always be put to the sword? I can only think that would be sent to bed without your dinner. I yeah. think that's the only ruthless way to be put to bed. That's the classic ruthless that, that, bed putting, isn't it? No dinner. That's the classic. No so I think, uh, I think there is, I think you can be ruthless put to bed. Like when you're whining to a parent, like, oh, let me stay up for a bit longer. Let me watch the end of this. And it's just like a no. No, it's bang you're on the hour. Now. Bang on the hour and you're gone. I remember. Exactly, yeah. Don't try and cling onto the door frame as we carry you out the living room either, which was the, uh, the classic method for my childhood, but no. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, fine with that. Okay. Now, next up, on Tuesday night, in the 31st minute at Stamford Bridge, Karim Benzema struck a tame shot straight at Keparitha Balaga, to which BT Sports' Darren Fletcher said, it sums up his night, really. Um, Coxie, I object to this on on two levels, as did many listeners of cliches, actually. It's half an hour in is too early for a game itself to sum up a player's night. And the 2-0 kind of aggregate scoreline at that point overrides any narrative anyway so because he was already in a good place it doesn't matter how shit a night he might have had it doesn't matter because they, they were going to go through quite comfortably so a very poor usage yeah I, I just like everything about that can't, okay. can't add anything else <laughs> just shouldn't have happened um, the, only, the only saving grace for it Charlie is that it was a quite sums up his nighty situation it was a shot from about the edge of the box I would say and it, and it was barely worthy of the name. It was sort of, it bobbled into the arms of a waiting Aretha Balaga. So it was very sums up his nighty. The only thing that could be more sums up his nighty is if he dragged it wide. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I've spoken about this earlier this season, I think, but I, I do feel like this season, the sums up his afternoon or their afternoon has been, it's really exploded. I mean, it's always been a thing, but I feel like it's every game towards the end of a half, a first half, you're going, well, sums up their half, doesn't it? You know, a misplaced pass or something. It's a real go-to now. Yeah, and and you you often get it in the combo as well, Charlie. You often get it kind of sums up his night and sums up Real Madrid's night too, really. And and that certainly <laughs> wouldn't have worked. So, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and there was so much yesterday of it summing up. Everything summed up Chelsea's season. Mm, mm. Every mischance. Oh, if it sums or, up your season, you're fucked. You I know mean, you're fucked. There was... There was one when it was kind of like, I think it was one that was then flagged for offside. Well, it sums up their season. Actually, when it counted. But even so, it still sums up their season. <laughs> well, no, that's fine. I mean, it's still technical, you know, ineptitude. So I'm all right with it. But yeah. Okay. The other thing as well with Benzema is whether he's entering. I think he might be. And he missed a chance. And it was then he was given the, not quite these words, but the, well, he is human after all mm. treatment. And I do, has he entered that galaxy? It feels like he's I, I there or he, thereabouts. Yeah, I mean, definitely in Champions League terms. You know, he's just dominant, especially against English sides. I think it's mm. it, it's going to be five knockout games in a row Real Madrid have had, I think, against mm. English sides. So he's, well, he's in that category. I, I just object to him always being called Benzema. Benzema. I now say it because that is that is now the fabric of the Champions League. Is that, is that's how it's pronounced. Fletch's voice in my head. I can't pronounce it any other way. It um, is quite fun to say. I just 
It's just not correct, is it? Benzema. I haven't said Benzema for so long and I'm sure that's how it should... Benzema. Benzema. Anyway, um, speaking of, you know, he is human after all, perhaps that's one of the central tenets to what we're going to go through today. We're talking about the over-mythologised 11. Now, this is possibly one of the, on the face of it, Charlie, one of the vaguer concepts we've done for an 11, but there are so many kind of elements to this that I think it does work. But I want to kind of establish the theme here. First of all, the word myth has a kind of negative connotation. It implies fraudulence. It implies overratedness. But that's not really what we're aiming for here. We're aiming for footballers who kind of transcended what they, you know, their role and became bigger than they were for better or worse. So it could be a bad thing. It could be a good thing. It could be a it could be a middle thing. Who knows? But myth in its entirety is what we're after here. Mm-hmm. No, and you're right. I mean, you, you put out in the tweet about it not being about overrated and underrated. <laughs> it's very important. Which I know, yeah, I know is a big uh, bugbear of yours. Mm. But yeah, I mean, we'll get it. I guess there's maybe some overlap, but yeah, it's not about that. And Michael, there's a kind of, I feel like there's a scale to this concept, uh, which lends itself to this 11 quite well, which is, I think the entry level for myth building is, you know, his stock rises where every game he doesn't play. So Mm. kind of really kind of local myth building. It's like he's been out for a while and, you know, you know, every game he doesn't play, he just gets better. So there's that. And then it goes all the way up to the greatest footballer you never saw, which is the ultimate myth. Like d- Myths don't get bigger than that, I don't think. And then maybe in the middle, it's just being the subject of a thread by the upshot. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain type of footballer that I just, I almost can't take them seriously because I've, for example, any footballer that played in South America before about 1990 where there's like reliable footage. You read about them in books and it's just, it's just nonsense. It's like, you know, there was never a defender who faced up to him and emerged with the ball. And it's like, (laughs) what, he had a 100% dribble success rate, did he, every season? I just can't take it seriously, sorry. Well, this is is a very good point. I think, Charlie, this is going to be a running theme of this 11 throughout, which is, you know, it is quite tempting, especially when there isn't kind of documentary evidence of a footballer's abilities, to overplay their kind of aura and even mm. just overplay their kind of technical skills, exactly as Michael said. You, you can make any player sound great, really, just in words, without anybody seeing them be able to disprove it. So it's it's all our fault, really. Yeah, and I do, I do understand as I get older the temptation to do this, the reverence for players from bygone eras. You know, even, you know, some of these players, I'm going to suggest were play, we grew up with, and they've been sort of elevated. And I think part of it, it, yeah, it is that temptation to make sure that they are fully appreciated by by those who never have seen them. And, and so there's this impulse to, to exaggerate just how good they were. You know, like they never missed a chance, mm. as Michael says. They, never, they were never dispossessed um, when the reality is probably a bit more mundane. Okay, so let's establish a few of these of these cornerstones of this team. This Again, to reiterate, this is not about overrated or underrated players necessarily, although that can be part of their myth. You know, if they sum up that discourse and they sum up that debate, that can be useful. Players whose one or two sort of definitive attributes became exaggerated for the purposes of establishing their legacy, that's quite important. Players who've had like a thousand tales told about them, some of which are true, some of which are not true, some of them are completely exaggerated. Uh, players whose careers were kind of cut short by injury or, or who just decided to retire early, because I think that's hugely mm. important part of myth building and, and that's nobody's fault really that's, they kind of leave you wanting more so I think that's that's an aspect and I like this one it's very specific from Danny Porter Michael he says younger brothers who are better than the established older brother <laughs> X but somehow never came to fruition 
Carl Jung, Ashley's brother, and Killian Hazard, Eden's brother, both spring to mind. Mm. And he's always the youngest of three as well, he says. Yeah, if you're a third mm. brother, then then the myth begins. And then that's it. Um, they won't make it. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't have anyone in my team along those lines, oh. actually, but that's a really good shout. Yeah, me neither, actually. I don't think we've got any younger siblings. Charlie, anything anything there? Well, no, that is a great one because uh, I remember in tennis, Novak Djokovic, he is a middle brother. Oh. He's got an odd one. But there was always a, you should see his younger brother. If you think this guy's good, wait. They say he's even brother. better. He's even better. Even sort of in that hushed tone. I think he's good. Because you're never going to have to prove brother. it, are you? It's yeah, just something exactly. you say. <laughs> Talk is so cheap. Like, well, it never amounted to anything. Maybe it works. But, you know, he's younger. He had to watch them be good and he's taken it all on board. You never know. Well, there is that. There is a lot of evidence that younger siblings, I think Erling Haaland is a younger sibling, uh, that it does help you with your development. Do you hear that, Oli Hurry? Up. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right. Um, right, let's kick things off. With the over mythologized 11, let's start in goal, which, you know, Michael, I wasn't sure at first. Is this, does this lend itself to myth building, particularly goalkeeping? But then, of course, it does. There are kind of sort mm. of lots of intangible, kind of fabled attributes of goalkeeping that might that might work here. So there's kind of omnipresence, invincibility, you shall not pass kind of things that get completely overblown without any kind of statistical backing to it. Maybe having a nickname helps. Or maybe having like one game, supposedly, where nothing got past them. So there's lots of ways we can entry into this, can't we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, there's one standout candidate. And in fact, I in, in Googling, I found a great article on the BBC website about this player and how everything about him is completely made up. And that is the legendary William Fatty Falk. Oh, right. Uh, I wasn't sure that was where he was going to be. OK, right. OK, go on, man. And just, I mean, everything about him is nonsense. So there's this story that he um, saw out his final days earning money by challenging kids to score penalties past him on Blackpool Beach. <laughs> Brilliant. He actually, he actually lived in Sheffield. Right. Um, there's a story that this song, Who Ate All the Pies, was devised <laughs> and sung at him, despite the fact it's to the tune of Knees Up Mother Brown, which was devised excellent. about two decades later. Oh, excellent. And just stuff that, stuff that we can't disprove, but there's this famous story about him staying at the team hotel ahead of a game, uh, going down to breakfast early and consuming all 11 breakfasts for his teammates. <laughs> I just, I, I mean, practically, how did that work? Like, he gets, like, the, you know, all the dishes are laid out on the table and he goes around to eat them all before anyone's emerged in the morning. It just strikes me as distinctly unlikely. Um, by all accounts, quite a good goalkeeper. Played for England in that. You're right. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I just don't believe anything about him. Sorry. Charlie, you see, you know, all the evidence building up here, he seems like the, the most soccer AM footballer of the, of the late 19th, <laughs> early 20th century. <laughs> yeah, he'd have had a great. He'd have been on the on sofa that. like half a dozen times. Fatty's <laughs> on again. He'd have been in that list we had. The sort of, the, I mean, the, the he, big, the most appearances. He basically was the prototype for the Sutton United goalkeeper. Exactly. That was yeah. Suspended yeah. for um, spot fixing. I <laughs> Not what, that, that one story that wasn't pinned on Fatty Folk was match fixing. Just just dumping strikers on their head in the penalty area apparently was one of his things. But okay, so slightly slightly comedy um, option here, but I'm not against it actually, Charlie. Who else have you got? Well, the, I think the goalkeeping one lends itself really well because you know that's always kind of crazy characters, apocryphal stories. So I've got a few kind of nominees. One is uh, George Campos of Mexico, the designed his own kits. Mm. I saw something recently of him popping up outfield and scoring a really good goal. Schiller for his ridiculous free kick taking pedigree. Uh, Tomaszewski, the clown, if that's how that's pronounced, the Polish goalkeeper who 
kept England at bay and went down in legend. I mean, you know, and he fits into that, had one game. Yeah. That's all he's known for. Yeah. Rene Hagita, also against England, the scorpion kick. I don't know if people think he did that on a kind of regular <laughs> basis. <laughs> as if that was his kind of, you know, trademark move. I remember as a kid, I kind of thought and hoped that was the case. I imagine probably not. I think those that triumvirate of 90s goalkeepers from Central and South America is, is, is an important one for us to address. I think of the three, I would say Higuita's probably the most mythical because Chilever was a good goalkeeper, uh, an important figure for Paraguay, and just happened to have an extra thing in his locker, which was, you know... I don't think it ever Quite transcended what... Yeah. Oh, no, no question. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, clearly. But it never kind of transcended itself, did it? It was just, that was its thing. Mm. Then, yeah, Jorge Campos had the kits, which I which is no more than a gimmick for me. I don't think it really... It doesn't really kind of burnish his kind of aura particularly, but then being small and then also scoring amazing scissor kicks at the other end of the field also does help. But I think Higita... Coxie had that kind of extra layer because obviously there was the kind of let's not skirt around it too much but there would be Colombian um, extracurricular activities aspect to it which which I think might help true crime that's good for mything yeah definitely and that seems to become even, even more kind of popular in recent years I feel like especially with Colombia I mean I went to Colombia a few years ago and people just obsessed with visiting all these old kind of drug cartel places and yeah it's slightly strange vibe to all that but yeah he is a very good one for this and I really like the fact Charlie says that you know he did something once and that was kind of like you know became his almost as if he was like a Pokemon that only had one way to attack (laughs) do you know what I mean it reminds actually I was going through a load of um stuff like a load of stuff I'd, I'd compiled for book research a few years ago and one of them was um the times guide to the 1998 world cup mm-hmm. and for each team they had a thing to watch out for so england would be michael owen's pace or you know zidane's creativity and the one for saudi arabia was just side <laughs> side our orion's uh, midfield dribbles because he'd done it once what? four years ago so that was that was just their thing because you could keep an eye out for that yeah <laughs> there was no y scout then you couldn't really research these things you just had to assume if someone had done something once four years ago they would they would try and do it 10 times a game well um, yeah i think yeah i think yeah sort of 70s 80s 90s was the was the kind of sweet spot golden era for doing something once and then being remembered for it i don't think it kind of happens now because i don't know it's kind of becomes too documented if anything right we're on the right track with goalkeepers i'm happy with higita i'm very happy with William Fatty Folk. One more option for you. This is Lev Yashin. And there are mm. there are upsides and downsides to this, Charlie. But first of all, he was nicknamed the Black Spider or the Black Panther, even though he played in dark blue. So, I mean, that's okay. just a lie. So that's great. Mm-hmm. But a great lie, like a romantic lie. The only goalkeeping winner of the Ballon d'Or. So, you know, mm. achievement and standing alone. Scott Drayton says, barely anyone alive will have seen him play, but he's got two nicknames. And if you ask anyone about, he's the best keeper that's ever been. It wouldn't surprise me if he was an early Cold War creation to make sure that US's bald <laughs> goalkeepers are lauded less. <laughs> Which is a lovely theory. <laughs> and um, and on top of that, Charlie, uh, Alan Byrne says, Levy Ashin's Wikipedia page makes the ludicrous claim that he is estimated to have made over 150 penalty saves during his career. <laughs> well, that's... That, that would square the circle quite neatly because I was thinking there must be a kind of 
penalty saving myth around a goalkeeper I mean not a myth but David Seaman for a while that was his thing wasn't it yeah was saving penalties and there was all that stuff about how does it how does he read them how do he, he's actually cracked the code he can look at their run-up and that's how he uh, knows where to go each time so that is a good plus point for Yashin plus the fact that at the World Cup it's the best goalkeeper award is the Lev Yashin award isn't it yes yeah, I, I think ultimate tribute. Yeah, I think he's just he's too inextricably linked with being good and doesn't really have anything else about him. I mean, I mean, there is a Lev Yashin story, of, of course, but in, in a footballing sense, I don't think there's much more of an aura there. So let's let's put cast him aside here. So between Higita and Folk, I'm going to go with Fatty Folk actually. But um, the, the last possible spanner in this is from Jack Painter, who simply says. Pope John Paul II. (laughs) 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 Which I suppose, you know, if you take a uh, a liberal approach to the definition of what a myth is, then I suppose he (laughs) is wrapped up in it. Um, So I'm... So I do like it, but Fatty Folk, just just for the purposes of the silly stories and the distance involved and the fact he was absolutely massive, um, clinches it for me. Sorry, Rene Higuita. Now let's move into our (laughs) defence. Charlie. That's such a good show. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointed it wasn't Julio Iglesias, but, you know, you can't pick these things. Now, in our back four, or five, depending on how we go, or three, who knows? Charlie, I, th- I feel like the overriding aura situation here is physical prowess, aerial dominance, kind of fearless leaders with an optional kind of terrifying reputation. Is, is there any other way to go about this? Yeah, there is what that's one. But I think the other, and I've got someone or two people specifically in mind, is the they were so cerebral and good that they didn't even have to do the things that we think are the kind of natural attributes of a defender. I'm clearly here thinking about Paolo Maldini right. and Franco Baresi, yeah. who not only are there myths about how few goals they conceded, which used to be a thing that you'd get tweets put out being like, Paolo Maldini once conceded three goals in 100 games or something but also the and and this to Michael's point about clearly made up stats like Maldini once went through a season without muddying his shorts or making a tackle or something <laughs> just like utterly ludicrous stuff you're like wow it's like yeah, an opt he, April he, Fool's tweet that one <laughs> yeah. um, he, he was good I want to address this point specifically Michael um, I, I, know, I think we might have talked about this on the podcast before but I, I don't care because I've, I've collated this and I will use it specifically the Baresi Maldini stat that did the rounds. Here's the first instance of it. Franco Baresi and Paolo Maldini played 196 matches together for AC Milan and conceded just 29 goals. And this is in a gloriously put together, lovely piece of crisp social media imagery from the Odds Bible. (laughs) Right. And then, presumably around the same time, from the Sport Bible, Franco Baresi and Paolo Maldini played 196 matches together for AC Milan and conceded just 29 goals. Insane, they say. Um, just the Bible misleading people again. Yeah, and so I think someone worked out that actually in 196 games together, they collectively scored 29 goals. Right. What, so it's the complete then? opposite. It, was, it wasn't how many they conceded. And then, of course, you know, once you chart the uh, development of this myth, people put in that they played centre-back together, which, of course, they very rarely did because Maldini was a left-back in those days. So That's quite annoying. Th- it's actually quite annoying. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. it's already untrue. Don't add more nonsense to it. Yeah. That's interesting, though, about the goals thing. So there was actually like a seed of something in it. I kind of thought it was just entirely made up. That is That makes a bit more sense, maybe. Yeah. Someone misconstrued it once and that's it. It's quite a big thing to get wrong, though, isn't it? 
Yeah. It is. But then do you remember Mourinho got it wrong? He read, misread appearances. He mistook appearances <laughs> for goals when going through how many <laughs> goals his strikers had scored for him. So it can happen. Oh, imagine being told about that, how annoyed you would be. Um, I quite like this as a centre-back partnership based on that myth now because um, we can't have Maldini at left-back, really, Michael, because I want Roberto Carlos at left-back. Yeah. Um, now... Uh, let's start at the top of the surface level of this myth, which is, you know, free kicks being his thing. And we all know that, yeah, he's got a cup, you know, one or two very good ones. And then had, it essentially became a kind of coconut shy situation for the rest of his career. But he, but he was a more well-rounded player in every sense than that. So I feel like that's, that's part, that kind of accentuates his myth even more. He was just a really good player, but people don't tend to focus on it. I think he's one of the most overlooked elite players of the 90s in terms of his all-round game. Yeah, and I think there's, there was a big thing about his thighs, wasn't there? Yeah. And I, I remember there was some yeah. nonsense story that he used to plough a farm or something, and that's why he <laughs> developed such chunky thighs. And yet his, his free kick taking in general was absolutely terrible, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, I always think the worst thing that can happen is if one of your team's players scores like a, a sensational free kick, like a, a logic defying free kick, because they try and do that again and again and mm-hmm. again. A little bit like with the Cristiano uh, Ronaldo one against Portsmouth. You know, he tried that hundreds more times and very few went in. But yeah, Carlos, I think, is a, is a really good shout for this. And he was at that kind of... He was in that kind of area where... You didn't see that much of a player. And so I don't think their weaknesses in that were kind of really found out. But it was just all about, you know, that one moment in the tournoi. Well, actually, I saw an interview with him about a year after that goal in the tournoi. Mm. And he was asked how he did it. And he said it really helped because it was actually a really windy day. Oh. Which kind of ruins it a bit. Nobody knows about this. On that goal, Charlie, the free kick against France at the tournoi. um, I think if you score a goal that newspapers have to get a scientist in to explain... That definitely helps kind of burnish your myth, doesn't it? Because mm. like, it adds to the mystique if people can't explain it. Physicists yeah. can't work it out. Mad. I mean, it, it was extraordinary. And also that picture of the ball boy behind the goal mm. who's miles away covering their face thinking they're going to get hit. And it swerves to that extent. And uh, at a rough guess, I'd say about 60% of online content about that goal uses the wrong photo of that free kick. It's a completely different free kick in the same match, and which makes it look even more like wildly kind of sort of bent around the wall. But it's just a completely one that goes like went wide. It's really frustrating. And wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah, it's really important that, that people know this. That does speak to the legend and everything that was built up around it. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that it's given its own name, like, you know what that means if someone says, you know, I remember a teammate saying that, I'm going to Roberto Carp, like, yeah. you know what they're trying to do. They're going to do it there outside of the foot and try and get some Yeah, I, th- I think I, if you get sighted in playgrounds, that's definitely part of it because that, that's, that can almost span generations then. So that's good. I mm. do like that. Um, Michael, give me some more defenders, please. Well, the other one I've got, who I think is a poster boy for a thing you spoke about at the top about the more games they missed, the more highly rated they became was was Ledley King, mm. um, who was a brilliant defender. I mean, at his best, one of the best in the Premier League, no question. But it's it's a funny thing when, I mean, obviously any player can just get a career ending injury and that's really unfortunate. But when you're kind of constantly having fitness problems without wanting to sound harsh, a really important thing as a professional footballer is to be physically fit and available to play games. Mm. And it's always considered, you know, I almost think it boosts their reputation rather than saying, actually, he was, there was a flaw in this player's game. Um, I don't know if King is the best example of this, but um, I was struggling a bit for defenders. So uh, I went for him. No, I do like this, Charlie, because I I think a centre-back 
is definitely the best place for us to address the kind of playing on one leg phenomenon. Yeah, Paul McGrath at yeah. USA 94, uh, for example, or his dodgy knees, for example. Um, Berezi as well. At that yeah, point. exactly. So, totally. So I think Ledley no, King is a great Premier League example of this. Yeah, I was going to say, make some of the point because the people would always talk like, you know, he, he, he played, look at the career he had on one knee. Mm. You know, imagine if he had, like... And yeah, he'd have obviously got to play loads more games, but they they almost make it sound as if he'd have been like double <laughs> the player he was. Obviously, it's not quite as simplistic as that. Like, yes, he had to be patched up, but he was still able to play those games that he did. I'm typing his name into this back line, Michael, but I'm already really fearful of the quote tweets of this from people who just won't understand the concept of this podcast, thinking that we are somehow stating that Ledley King was rubbish and people are, people are building him up. Uh, it's not the case. It's not the case. This is simply one one little facet of the concept that we're talking about. Let's have Ledley King in our back line then. Um, it's a slightly weird back four, but any other any other names for me? Well, one that is mythologised and he's so much so that, you know, there are nicknames made. When a player gets good or does something like this player, there'll be sort of nicknames made of them. And that's Franz Beckenbauer, mm. who I feel whenever there, I remember there was like Peekenbauer for Gerard <laughs> Piquet. And uh, yeah, like if you get a sort of, I've obviously, I've never really seen him, I don't think, maybe a couple of grainy clips, but I guess he was the prototype for that sort of ball playing defender mm. who will who, who evokes yeah that wh- whenever you get a kind of emerging ball playing defender it's like you know he, he plays like Beckenbauer yeah weird because like he was kind of neck and neck at the time Coxie with Cruyff as being kind of one of the stars of the game but I feel like Cruyff shot son of into the stratosphere in terms of his enduring legacy like to the point of you know absurdity but Beckenbauer didn't really see it doesn't seem like he's had that legacy maybe she just went on to be a manager just a really boring admin guy and that just it didn't help. <laughs> yeah, and I think as well, Cruyff was kind of the poster boy for a whole movement, wasn't yeah. he, in football, whereas Beckenbauer was seen as part of a winning machine, really. I mean, so it's funny that the the guy who won more at international level anyway was the one who, uh, yeah, less less remembered. But no, it's a fair but That point. can be a big part of their myths, can't it? The yeah. guy, the, you know, the, who, who underachieves or who didn't win what they should have done often sort of burnishes someone's myth. Yeah. Mm. Finally, um, this came from listener Sam. He says, Terry Butcher, that bloodstained shirt is the luckiest thing to ever happen to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's, in some people's eyes, that's probably the only thing that happened to Terry Butcher is having... A head injury against Sweden. When it happened with Paul Ince as well, mm. he kind of got a second round. Yeah. Of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like when it's like when a band comes out and they're very similar to a band <laughs> from twenty it. years beforehand. I remember or when cover the, a track of theirs. Yeah. I remember when when the Strokes came out. I hadn't heard of the Velvet Underground, and yet suddenly there were so many articles going on about the Velvet Underground. I feel like Terry Butcher. I, I can't remember him as an England player, but when that happened to Paul Ince, it was all oh the yeah. Terry Butcher spirit. Yeah. I think I think it helps, but it's not quite enough. Let's stick with our slightly ersatz back four. Roberto Carlos, Maldini and Baresi intertwined at centre-half, no matter what the record books say. And let's just put Ledley King at right back, and he's still got a bit of pace about him on one leg. He'll be fine. Sorry about this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. 
This is football cliches. Right, into midfield. Three words for you, Michael Cox. Skulls of Manchester. <laughs> I, the, the greatest quote that football has ever... I, I, I haven't had time to actually go and find where this originates, but it, it is the quote of all time. Yeah, I mean, he'd be... He'd be been my captain for this 11. I mean, a, a brilliant player in his day, wonderful technically. But the, I mean, the whole thing about him really started kind of in his last year before he retired. And the the number of times people go on about things he was doing in training, hitting a tree mm. from you, 60 What is your favourite yeah, yeah, yeah. training story, Charlie? <laughs> There's a what I think when they're coming through all the, the class of 92 and yeah, he, he was just, you could say anywhere hit the ball anywhere and he'd do it and there's probably one where he hit Fergie or something but just just how amazing he was and, and that's for the class of 92 we had Becks we had all sorts mm. but it was Scolzi yeah. who stood out yeah it is good yeah the Zidane quote my toughest opponent Scholes of Manchester and speaking of Zidane Coxie I mean you basically think the guy's a fraud don't you he didn't play very well that often in his club career right. I think is a concise way to put it but you wouldn't have him in this 11 necessarily <laughs> I wouldn't because I think maybe we're going towards the kind of overrated thing but I mean it's quite funny you do see a lot of people going on about him on Twitter now who I suspect are too young to be around to have remembered him you know watched him too many times but he he was a player who he was like a moments player I mean he did incredible bits of skill in midfield which look great on YouTube but maybe don't sum up his level of effectiveness but I think Skulls is a really good one for this there's a particular revisionism around the Sven Goran Eriksson playing him on the left thing Yes. Mm. Because actually the debate at that time, everyone wanted Skulls out of the team. Skulls had been quite bad for two years. And actually Ericsson playing him on the left was a way to make sure he was in the team. It was actually a show of faith in Skulls mm. rather than, oh, we're putting him out on the left because we don't really understand that passing is good. Um, and there's also a weird thing about him where, I mean, the game's changed a bit, but I mean, tackling was quite an important part of yeah. playing a, a midfield role at that time. And I didn't think of this actually. Yes, go on. Well, and it was kind of, I mean, it was quite an obvious weakness in his game. You can go back and look at certain free kick goals England conceded. Ronaldinho at the World Cup, Haman at Wembley, I think were both Skulls tackles. And that was used to kind of praise him even more. Yeah, that, you know, well, that was oh, the film oh, Sandy Gray. <laughs> never learned Skulls. <laughs> I think, I think this, this caps it off. I mean, he was in anyway, but I completely forgot about this aspect. Yeah, becoming a running joke for for something you're you know, notably not good at, I think is is reverse myth building at its best. And of course he missed the he missed the Champions League final in ninety nine because mm. of bookings mm. and this was never no one ever went do you know what Skulls should probably just sort that, that out it was like oh really unfortunate about Skulls isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just a flaw he couldn't possibly <laughs> yeah it was, it, was, it was almost like considered a kind of like an affectionate thing wasn't it that's oh it was weird. definitely a badge of honour yeah, yeah they odd. loved it but I, I wonder now if like the, because of the growth of social media and the well actually brigade <laughs> is that a brigade <laughs> I think it is. It's, well, it's certainly a movement. Right. I mean, like back then, Zidane, there would have been a lot of, well, actually, how good is he at club mm. level? Or, mm. Scott, well, actually, you know, he, he can't tackle. Whereas it just didn't exist in the same way. So players were, were able to have these mythologies built around them. Now, or, or Schmeichel, who, who I think is more the overrated, underrated. But I'm sure there would have been loads of athletic articles at the time being like, you know, whisper it quietly, but you know, keeps getting is, chipped. Is how is is how often he gets chipped an issue, or his like his weird Why would have killed him in nineteen ninety six, wouldn't it? Absolutely you know, like destroyed De, him. De Gea now, there's the yeah. Well, actually, he can't play with his feet. Back then, you just. It was All those fine, little annotated you know, curves of the ball over his head absolutely destroyed <laughs> him. Um, Can you imagine Davos Shuka. Yeah. Um, 
back to Zidane, though. I mean, if you, if you like the um, completely nonsense Baresi Maldini stat, how about this? Uh, Tom Bangerta says, um, doesn't really tick the boxes, but can we have a shout out for Zidane just because of the myth he's never been offside? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what I like about this complete bollocks myth, Michael, is that I can sort of imagine that it might be true because you can imagine Zedan never sort of running through a defence or running onto a kind of through ball. So maybe he just never ventured that far forward. But there are articles debunking it. I, can I just read you a paragraph? <laughs> <laughs> Subheader goes, was Zidane ever offside for Real Madrid or France? Yes, of course he was. Like almost every retired player in the world, Zizou was caught offside a fair few times during his football career. It is verified by statisticians that he was caught offside five times during his career for France at the FIFA World Cup and UEFA European Championships. Cheers, lads. Brilliant. Great debunking. But what's that even meant to show? That what he was so intelligent or played the game at his own pace that he was never offside? He just looked across the line, Charlie. Well, I mean... I. I'm genuinely really interested as to why that myth... Is, is that why? Is that what it's supposed to tell you? <laughs> no, I, I think it's clever, yeah. Spatial awareness. I, I would guess that there's some site that has statistics for every player. And before a certain period of time, it doesn't have certain statistics. And so, you know, it's quite hard to get offside data before 2000 or whatever. <laughs> so someone's clicked on that and it said offside zero. <laughs> right. The same way it would have said throw in zero or misplaced pass to zero. And someone's gone, wow, he was never offside. Yep. But yeah, what it's meant to show, I mean, God knows. He was quite a languid midfielder. I'm actually surprised he was ever caught offside. What, what was yeah. he doing? I can't imagine it. I can, can you imagine him sort of... Him running in behind. Yeah, and sort yeah. of throwing <laughs> his hands up at a linesman. He just, just, just doesn't belong <laughs> to, in that scenario. To it's be honest, fine. I, I can imagine it because I've seen the video version of that debunking article. <laughs> Fantastic. What a montage that would be. Zidane <laughs> offsides. Pipe simple. <laughs> HD. You know, borderline ones, miles off. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, Second phase. <laughs> um, <laughs> midfield, midfield is really good for this 11, mm. Charlie, because midfielders are, they're not as quantifiably easy to understand as goalkeepers who don't concede, defenders who keep clean sheets, strikers who score goals. They are open to these intangibles that lend themselves to kind of the myth-building mm. process. I really like this one. This is a great avenue for us to go down um i'll give you the name musa dembele lots yeah, of so many listeners nominated him for this very specific reason him being constantly cited by past and current teammates as the best player they've ever played with as if it might be some sort of revelation to people who most of them will thought he was quite good but didn't think that he would be at that level and i think that's kind of one of our cornerstones here because it's the strongest you know it is a myth-building thing, but at the same time, it's one of the strongest pieces of anecdotal evidence you could have of a player's technical ability. So if it's the opposite of a myth. Yeah, he's a bit in that Skulls of Manchester category, I would say, where it, it, it just snowballed, that you had a few players saying it and then everyone was saying it. And I even mentioned this. I think I mentioned Dembele the other week on View from the Lane and said, I know there is a lot of kind of mythology around him because it has become... It, it sort of took on a life of its own mm. where he, he did just become... Um, kind of the greatest player <laughs> to have ever played the game over a really short period. And he was amazing mm. for a relatively short period. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I think the more I think about it, I think just fellow professionals saying you're really good kind of completely obliterates this concept. But I want to go down another avenue now, Michael, which is players who are kind of retrospectively tagged as the solution to a problem that may or may not have existed. Um, Dominic Hull suggests Michael Carrick. He was a good player and you'd swear by the way people talked about him that he was genuinely at that lampard Jared level when he wasn't even that close. He is kind of constantly cited now as the solution to England's supposed kind of problems with keeping the ball at that in that era. 
Does that help in this process? I don't necessarily see that with Carrick. I must say, I think that was, I think that was how some people spoke of him at the time, to be honest. I mean, I think there's another mm. similar player from that era uh, that works, which is Claude Makaleli, mm, who was yeah. who was a very good player, don't get me wrong, but I thought his, you know, the whole thing about the Makaleli role was what was going on around him. I mean, at Real Madrid, no one else was defending. He was the only one there. He was a good player, but the fact he got his own, you know, a role named after him, I'm not sure he really was on that level. And yet people now go on about him. Oh, he was, he was the best player at Real Madrid. You know, you look at that well, team, but he wasn't. Raul was better, Ronaldo was better, Zidane was better, Figo was better. He did a job, but he was by no means the best player or close to the best player at Real Madrid. He benefited a lot because he was sold in that Galacticos era. He was kind of the collateral damage of the Galacticos era. And when he left in 2003, they then didn't win the title for years. And it was he was the symbol of, you see, you don't know what you're doing. You need to have proper players like Makaleli and by jettisoning them you know, it's a circus. So I think that even in his own time, he became elevated to something maybe more than he was. And you're right, but it's because of the contrast he had with his teammates. He was the only one with any discipline that the Makaleli role, the idea of it was born. Um, I'm I'm very happy with this suggestion. I, Charlie, I, on that basis, I do wonder sort of maybe during the first half of his Real Madrid career, how many times he got a, you know, a quiet word for Claude Makaleli, by the way, yeah, you know, but, really knitted yeah. things together, you know, just before the yeah. myth really grew. That, that's, uh, yeah, whisper it quietly, but I think Real Madrid he, have unearthed became, a gem here. He became the ultimate of that. I mean, a bit like how Gilberto in the that, that Arsenal team, which was all about attacking players, really. Mm. But he, and he was also one who, if he didn't play, his reputation would be enhanced. Okay, this is good. So Makaleli's, you know, Credentials here are solid as a rock. Had a role named after him and essentially essentially brought about a movement of defensive midfielders in the Premier League, I would say. And crucially, underpins the entire, well, I think he's underrated. But is he underrated? People spoke about him so much. How could he possibly be underrated? Debate, which is the worst debate of the modern era, with the possible exception of name your all-time Premier League eleven, <laughs> which is the dullest thing imaginable. So I think... I think he's nailed it. McAuley has to be in our midfield. He sits there alongside Skulls of Manchester. Now, let's go into a bit more kind of mercurial, kind of cartoonish territory now, Charlie. Mm. I want to talk about mercurial wastemen, if we can. You know, stories of what could have been, you know, the right, stories okay. of, of from the training ground of the skills they would pull off. And uh, I'm talking about, you know, you Ravel Morrison's of this world. To an yeah. extent, Adel Tarab, but he kind of did it on the pitch quite notably, didn't he? Yeah, we don't want to overlap too much with the streets won't forget. No, absolutely not, which we'll never do, uh, which we'll never do. <laughs> the thor the thorny issue. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Ravel Morrison was the one who came to mind there. Yeah, again, you know there, there's a lot of mythology when any story, no matter how apocryphal, you can imagine kind of hearing. Yeah. You know, and if someone said to me, like, he was the best player, but he went and nutmegged Fergie or something, mm. you know, because he was so good. And so I'd sort of be like, yeah, I can imagine that that, was, that has been said at some point. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. There's also the, and this is another category, but I think we should address it. The sort of kind of impossibly cool people from slightly before our time. And I think someone like Socrates here, mm. I've never really seen him play. I've seen, I mean, there's that one goal 
in the and it must be the eighty two World Cup, which is kind of held up, isn't it? As like the height of footballing cool. Yeah. And again, just to Michael was saying about players that didn't win things, that team didn't win, and I think that made them even cooler yes, somehow. I would agree with this. So I think that's helpful. Someone like him, the kind of you know, he actually smoked during a game at the World Cup or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like uh, that can't be true. <laughs> that's but a I'm book sure of I've heard, You know? Yeah. <laughs> you are the ref. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, yeah. So that kind of myth you know just like the impossibly cool would be on a t-shirt and the, you know the phd or whatever it was and and the garth of town yeah I mean, it's just yeah. a lot to go in that's on, true something like that. i do like that uh, here, here's another absurd step for you i, I love the fact because this has two citations next to it on wikipedia michael this is um this is from uh, svindelstrom it says, this is taken from Niels Leedholm's Wikipedia page. According to legend, it took two years playing for Milan until Leedholm misplaced his first pass at the San Siro. <laughs> the rarity prompting a five-minute ovation from the home crowd. Two citations for this. Um, the, the ultimate collector's item. <laughs> ultimate he is human after all. <laughs> Um, he's not going in the team, but I do love that. Um, Socrates, That's amazing. Socrates is good. I do like this. I, I never knew this. Uh, he, this isn't going in the team either, but I did like this as a little touch. Will Tucker says, JJ Akotcha, Michael. Great player to watch. So good they named him twice. The streets won't forget his name. Search his name on here and you'll find people saying he's better than Ronaldinho. He was also, Will Tucker says, nominated for the PFA Player of the Year Award with zero goals and zero assists. Yeah, I do remember wow. that. That's actually. pure myth. Yeah. That, that's, that's the myth propelling you to award nominations. Crucial. Yeah. He, uh, there was also, I mean, a good thing about Akodja is that everyone always plays that um, when he did the rainbow flick over. Was it Ray Parler? Ray Parler, yeah. And of course, what happened in that situation, Charlie? Well, he lost the ball. Well, the ball went out of play and it was a goal oh, kick. Was it? Yeah. Which is, I yeah. think is even worse than losing the ball if it goes over the, the touchline. <laughs> it's like how at school, you really annoying. People do nutmegs and like celebrate them, but they lose the ball. It'd be like, mm. but so what? What are you celebrating? You've lost the ball. Yeah. yeah. Didn't make me very popular, but... There are, there are kind of a lot of shouts, Michael, for kind of incredibly skillful um, kind of fleeting presences in world football. Uh, the curl on with his seal dribble. It's too much of a gimmick. I don't mm. think there's much myth there because nothing else happened. Mm. And I, whilst I am attracted to the idea of kind of greatest kids that never quite went on to become superstars in any way, it's quite a seductive myth. But I don't think we've... Have we got a kind of poster boy for this particularly? Freddie Adu is the one, isn't it? That was sort of mm. the, the youngster that yeah. never... Uh, yeah, never fulfilled their potential. Or one. Gail Kakuta, someone like that. Yeah. Well, can, is this a good place to talk about Joe Cole? Yeah, all right. Because obviously mm-hmm. he went on to have a great career. But for years, there was this thing that he scored seven goals for England schoolboys against Spain, which doesn't seem to have happened. The weird thing about this being cited about him scoring seven for England schoolboys was that five or six years into his career, you know, he was kind of an inconsistent player and it would still be cited as evidence of what a good player he was, like rather than the games he played last week in the Premier League. <laughs> Japan we must never forget. And there was also this, I mean, I always thought with Joe Cole, he was a talented player. He never really impressed me as a kind of efficient footballer until the Mourinho era. Mm. And yet there's this thing that Mourinho ruined him as a player. Whereas for me, the reverse was true. He was he was quite bad. Mourinho found a role for him. Joe Cole was really good that second title winning season that um, goal against United that scored, he the yeah, title scored with, the brilliant he? goal against like he was a really key part of the side and yet people still seem to think 
oh, what a player Joe Cole could have been. Like, yeah. If only Mourinho ain't got his hands on him. <laughs> I, it's just the complete opposite to what happened. Complete nonsense. Okay. Did they? I feel like there was a consensus that Mourinho, even though at the start he might have been bad for him, he had sort of got hold of him and given him a role. Well, th- that's what people th- no, that's what people thought at the time. But later in his career, when he was kind of struggling at Liverpool, and I mean, right, he, he well, went it was back- like he, he lost his mojo. Yeah, he went back to West Ham, didn't he? And people are like, oh, yeah. you know, when he was here before, like he was. He could do anything. And then after Chelsea, nah. I, I'm just not having that. It was the complete opposite of what happened. It's amazing how much of football can simply be summed up by people losing and then rediscovering their mojo, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that really is. That really is just 80% of it, isn't it? Why don't we just all just give up? Mourinho himself has, re- has recently rediscovered his mojo. <laughs> so, do you know what? Um, I'm going to make the decision here. Um, my third man in midfield, I think given the underachievement aspect of it, his extracurricular responsibilities, his... Um, it's just general look and the smoking. Let's go with Socrates alongside Skulls and Macaulay. Right, let's go up front. Should be easy, I think, Michael. It's easy to embellish the goal-scoring ability of a legendary striker beyond the numbers. This should be fine for us. It's, you can exaggerate their all-round game. You know, he, he could shoot with his left. He could shoot with his, his right foot. He could score all kinds of goals. He was quick. He was powerful. He was strong. He could link up play. You could basically just end up listing things that aren't true about striker and nobody <laughs> will argue with it. Yeah, I must admit, I found it more difficult to find strikers than attacking midfielders. I had pretty much had a 4-5-1 formation. <laughs> no, we'll never um, have a 4-5-1 in the cliches. No, I'm sorry 11. to say that. I mean, if I can just tell you who my one was, a player I actually really liked and was really efficient. And yet I never really got the, the whole thing about him. And that was Dimitar Berbatov. Oh. Oh, who interesting. He's I mean, an he acquired was, taste, I think. He was a really good player. He scored a lot of goals. I mean, he, he won the Golden Boot jointly, but... A lot of people seem to go on about him in this kind of Cantona fashion. And I just, I never quite saw it. I mean, he was quite slow and had a good touch, which I think people really like or certain people really like. But I never had him down as the player who would kind of get me up out of my seat or get really excited about. I just thought he was quite a broadly efficient player rather than this kind of wayward genius. Well, you know, slight tangent here, Charlie, but I think languid players do this to people. Some people just don't like languid players. I think I might be one of them, actually. I like... Little dynamic ones instead. <laughs> I I do know what you mean. I did always have a little, yeah, that little bit with Berbatov. Like when he was at Leverkusen, and there's that one goal that's always shown. I think he sort of flicks it over his head and and scores. But I think the finish is a little isn't quite as clean as you want. Right. I do know what you mean. And like at United, it never even in that season, Michael, where he got the golden boot, he was dropped from the squad for the Champions yeah. League final. Mm. He wasn't even on the bench. Like he 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 didn't really. Do it, it wasn't like a Van Persie situation where he went and won them the title. I, I I'm not happy with this. We haven't nailed it. We haven't nailed it with our strikers, but we've we've got some things we can pursue. Here's someone I want to rule out straight away, Michael Ali Dyer. Because look, the thing is with Ali Dyer, everything about that story has been told. There isn't that much to it, really. He was shit. He blagged his way into a Premier League club. He played for less than an hour, then he disappeared via Gateshead, and then someone went and found him a few years later, and it all, you know, all unraveled. There, there isn't much else to the story. I don't think there's any myth there, is there? No, it's it's all true. We all know <laughs> the precise details. And there's of no legacy, really, is there? It's just something that something happened, and we all think just oh, that's weird. I mean, I mean, the only mythy thing I could be wrong. I don't think there's footage of that game. 
I've never seen him actually play. Exactly. Which is kind uh, of interesting. I think it's, inex- is not? it's inexcusable that the full match footage isn't, doesn't seem to be available. I can, I can picture it, but maybe I've just oh, imagined clips, it in my like head. There's little assorted oh, oh, clips, the ho- but yeah, yeah. Like, it's really annoying. Okay, well, you, you yeah. can't watch the whole... Yeah. And they're all from the same fucking TV show, like 50s most shocking moments in footy history from BBC <laughs> Three or something. So frustrating. <laughs> right, Ali Dyer's out the window, but... Yeah, he's definitely out. But there are a few, I mean, yeah, one. like... Well, just with the career ended by injury, Marco van Basten, as well, possibly because he end his career ended sort of just as I started watching football. So in my head, he is a kind of uh, mythological character, and because he was playing, he was playing in Syria, so which wasn't again that was just before it became readily available in this country. Gerd Müller, from the sort of nickname the bomber aspect and the fact that I'm sure these numbers are true but he's the first person I can remember ever really hearing their goal scoring numbers Mm. being told like well there was this striker for West Germany who actually scored you know 75 and 78 or something and uh, another option Adriano shot power 99 on Pro Evo (laughs) and you know just had the hardest shot in football but liked to party and was always a bit overweight let's dwell on him sort of what might have been yeah let's dwell on yeah exactly what might have been um, you know, burst onto the scene in a truly global sense, and I want to ha- I want to play one was good in a computer game card in this team. And if we are going to do it, it probably should be Adriano. I don't care about Championship Manager Wonder Kids. Not interested. Stay in the real world for as long as possible. Adriano, the shot power ninety nine and Pro Evo six, I believe. Let's have him in on that basis alone because because it's a it's a myth outside of football that kind of didn't help his career, but it kind of continues to define him. That's all people seem to talk about. So I like Adriano in this team just for a little bit of variation. Now, um, this is the closest I'm going to come to a hot take in this team, Michael, but um, luckily it's not my hot take. It's Matt Arnold's hot take. He says, I'm going to say Eric Cantona and then log out of here forever, he says. (laughs) Um, If he hadn't had the Kung Fu kick and no seagulls following the trawler and no retiring at 30, he he would be recorded as a great player, no doubt, but a lot less mythologised. And I think this is a really good case study for us because, you know, we could be accused here of, of undermining what he did for Manchester United. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. Retiring early, deliberately, is a huge, huge aspect of myth building. Uh, you know, let's setting aside all the other stuff. So I think Cantona has to be in this team. Yeah, it's an interesting shout. I mean... Maybe this doesn't matter, but I feel like the view of Cantona hasn't changed since his retirement, if that makes sense. He he was considered that way at the time. Whereas I feel a lot of these players, there's been some kind of revisionism post-retirement. That's a good point. That but that is- doesn't necessarily rule him out of contention. No. Um, perhaps it's between him then and uh, football's Chuck Norris, Charlie, which is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I mean, is it is it too much of a tacky myth? Because the myth isn't a kind of romantic one. People don't kind of wax lyrical about him in kind of absurd, kind of abstract language. He's just a dickhead and he kind of revels in it. He's almost, I think, damaged the mythology around him by continuing to go on for so long. Imagine, how, imagine like, what his bit- myth would be like if he didn't hadn't have spoken like this at any stage. Yeah, then I think he might have one because it would be, he might be quite a fashionable shout as like a... Well, for longevity and for pure technical ability, Zlatan's got to be in that conversation. Whereas he's not. No, I think everyone's like, he's too annoying and he's too... It's like those people who are so accessible. You're kind of like, mm, maybe but, less up for them. In his defence, slightly, Coxie, if he hadn't have been so vocal about himself, there's always that fear that he could have just ended up being a bit, I don't know, Dimitar Berbatov with a jiu-jitsu black belt. Yeah, I mean, he's a funny character because he's got this, you know, slightly weird social media act. I don't know to what extent that is him and to what extent it's... Mm. 
people suggesting it. But at the same time, I mean, he's he's an incredibly private person. I mean, he never, you know, says anything about his family or his kids. He never has any kind of photos of them. So I find him quite interesting because it's almost like there are two elements to him. I mean, I know a lot of kind of famous people do this. They have a, a you know, one act in person. So one act in their private life and another in their kind of professional life. And maybe he has literally built a myth to kind of guard his his privacy. I don't know. And there's a Slatan film, right? I am recalling yes. this correctly. So yeah. I feel like that helps. Um, like there was that Zidane. Yeah portrait i mean with zlatan as well we should just nod to the fact i think of them as maybe because they released their autobiography at the same time or similar time uh andrea pirlo i know mm. we've done the midfield but just a nod to, i think he's a really interesting one as well no, we who, shouldn't gloss over him should we that's a good point he, he he went from being he probably was a bit I'm, I'm sure in 2006 he wasn't talked about anywhere near as much as he would be now if he played like that but then it kind of went almost over the top with him being sort of venerated as like the greatest player ever again partly because he was clearly really cool uh, with his beard and his look and all of that mm. and then I think there was then some mythologizing about him as a player and that he had you know that everyone had said well actually he was the best player they ever played against and and all of that. So just quite an interesting journey that he went on. Okay, right. Um, Zlatan's in ahead of Eric Cantona then in that case. Um, Now, we have to have, uh, you know, we said it right at the top of this show, Michael, we have to have candidate for greatest footballer you never saw. And I think the man whose book was entitled Greatest Footballer You Never Saw, I believe, which is Robin Friday, um, Mm. cited by many people for this process. So there was a book, I think there was supposed to be a film about him by the guy who wrote the book, but that doesn't seem to have emerged he's got an 8000 word wikipedia page wow and his a kind of defining moment of his career that very few people seem to have witnessed seemed to be this a vital fixture on 31st of march 1976 pitted fourth place reading at home against tranmere friday had already scored 18 goals that season and rose to the occasion with a goal that has been described by many sources as one of the greatest ever scored Four citations. A high and diagonal pass across the pitch. He jumped into the air, used his chest to cushion the ball and knock it in the air with his back to goal about 25 to 30 yards away from the net. As he landed, he ferociously powered the ball towards goal, kicking over his shoulder and turning after the ball had gone. Seems like a weird way of despunning a scissors kick, but carry on. Um, The shot flew straight into the top right-hand corner of the net, stunning the crowd, players and Clive Thomas, the referee, who put his hands over his head in disbelief. Reading went on to win the game 5-0 when Clive Thomas... Told Friday after the game that he'd never seen a better goal, the Londoner replied, really? You should come down here more often. I do that every Hmm. week. That clinches it. (laughs) He's got to be in this team, doesn't he? The greatest footballer we never saw. So the only two things I really know about him, one, he scored a goal and then flicked a V at the goalkeeper. That's him, right? Yep. And he also defecated in a referee's kit bag or something. Also true, yep, supposedly. Couldn't have told you... Single goal he scored. Yeah, I mean he is he is a very mythologized player. I think he's perfect. Yeah, I do think. I think Super Fairy Animals had that song about. Yeah, him, exactly. In reference to the, the V. Yeah, and I believe he was available as a player in Actua Soccer Two. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Um, so, so that's there is that. Um, uh, we could talk about Nutcase Number Nine, Mick Harford, Billy Whitehurst. I mean, I suppose that is a myth to an extent, but it doesn't quite 
get into our equation. <laughs> I did like this one. I mean, I'm not sticking up for it either way, Charlie, but I did like this. Joe Diego says, the way Birmingham City fans mythologised Christophe de Gary, who scored <laughs> six goals in 31 appearances as he took the final paycheck of his career. I mean, that is a certain kind of little subgenre of myth. These players who kind of rescue clubs single-handedly yeah. from relegation. That is a good one. And just like, I mean, he was the first ever great January window signing. And, and he still lives on. I think he still gets cited when you talk about, what? Well, no, but there is value to be had in, in January. You know, Dugarin came in. It's purely uh, in top 10 list. Yeah, he, so there is that. But that is a good one. I like that, the one, the players that little bit, yeah, over-index what they do. Um, the final name for our forward line has no explanation with it whatsoever, but I think we all know what it means. It has the wider narrative attached to it. This came from Dave Bushell, and it is simply, Michael, Mark Robbins. Wow, that's a really interesting mm. shout, yeah. Yeah, for, for sliding one... doors footballers. Yeah. Who else? Who else? Who else has that kind of sliding doors aspect? Jesper Gronkjaer, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's a good one. Well, there's now the uh, Neil Mope with Argentina winning the World oh, Cup. If Mope God. hadn't injured Leno. Mm. Martinez wouldn't have come in. Martinez, you'd never have heard of him. He'd still be, you know, knocking around as the second choice. Oh, that is fun. That is fun. Day, uh, modern day butterfly. I nearly, I nearly mentioned Martinez for the goalkeeper actually, because give him another ten years. Yeah. I mean, he saved one penalty in the World Cup final. Yeah. I mean, don't he saved two in the semi as well. I appreciate that. And if he saved one in the World Cup final, brilliant. But the way people have spoken about him in recent year, uh, recent weeks, it's almost like people think he put some kind of <laughs> hex on the, <laughs> the France teams. He saved one penalty. Come on. He's, he, he did make that good save right at the end, though, as well. Incredible well, save. Yeah. you know. Yeah, the Zlatan of goalkeepers, I fear, he's going to become. That's my fear for... Martinez. Right, um, let's quickly rattle through a couple of extra things. Um, the standard kind of athletic new managerial hire long read makes them sound like they've completed football. They've solved it. There's, they've got no weaknesses. So we know that managerial myths can be built. How about the kind of godfather of managerial myth-making, Rinus Mikels, who, who I kind of see as like the homo erectus of modern football <laughs> managing, <laughs> of people who want to play the football the right way. It all stems back yeah. to him. Yeah, or Bielsa was another yeah. name who, who, who I do. I think, I certainly think what he did at Leeds is amazing. I don't know so well what he did, you know, compared to some experts of him. But you you know a manager's had an influence when you hear about disciples. Oh. And you hear a lot about, he's, he's very much a Bielsa disciple. Yeah, that's true. I, I almost seduced by the idea, Michael, of um, assistant managers who are actually said to have been the masterminds behind it all. Your Peter Taylor's. Mm. of this world you know maybe we should give them a crack at the number one spot in this team but um, do you know what who I think I might go for instead of Mikel's probably not though how about Will Still yeah I mean the the funny thing about him is and I do find his story very interesting but he's not really that English is he I mean he was was born abroad he spent barely any time in England and we're really claiming him like a kind of Adnan Yanazai style <laughs> manager situation. I know. I remember one of my friends uh, sent me this video, being like, "Isn't it amazing how he can switch between French and English so easily?" It's like he's he's lived his whole life in Belgium and yeah. France. It doesn't seem that we're still stunned you know, by it. Interesting. We're still, yeah. we're still amazed by it. But anyway, he's done a video for the coach's voice. I didn't see Rinus Mikels doing a video for the coach's voice. So uh, anyway, but he's still in there. Sporting director Charlie. I mean, they're all yes. the rage now. They're all complete frauds, let, these th- recruitment gurus. This is amazing. Th- this, yeah. But I think Monchi, yes. um, he, he's the sort of go-to. And he was like the first, or one of the first kind of celebrity sporting directors. I mean, now they're all the rage. But he, yeah, he sort of <laughs> put that role on the map. I mean, another one, though, on the 
And this is even beyond that. I think he was the executive vice chairman. But just when you say about like it was actually Peter Taylor, David Dean was always held up as when he left, it actually all fell apart for Wenger. You know, trace trace the Wenger decline to David Dean leaving. He was kind of the the right hand man who who made it all make sense yeah. for him. Yeah, I mean, I mean we've got to have a, we've got to have a mention for for Ralph Ranick as well. <laughs> I think. I, I just I think the fact that when Ronaldo did that interview with Piers Morgan, and he's just absolutely appalled, says, "Yeah, they needed a manager, and they appointed sporting director Ralph Ranick." Like. <laughs> Just as, as, if, as if it was like Prince Ralph Rangnick, sporting director Ralph Rangnick. He's oh. just completely, inextricably associated with uh, with being a sporting director. I'm so. glad you got that in. I'm glad you got that in. Um, we need a physio. I'm going for horse placenta ace Mariana Kovacevic. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, yeah. Right, that's it. Um, I guess they could just play at Stoke on a wet Tuesday night, Charlie. That's the best place for them, isn't it? That sounds good. Fantastic. Right. Right, let's run through our team then. In goal, William Fatty Folk, uh, defence of Roberto Carlos, Maldini and Baresi, and Ledley King. In midfield, Paul Scholes, Claude Makaleli, and Socrates. And up front, Adriano, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and Robin Friday. What a front line that is. <laughs> Superb. All led by the great Renus Mikels. Thanks to you, Charlie Eccleshare. Great 11 building from you. Thank you. That was really good fun. And well done to you, Coxie. 37.5% of your cliches career well spent. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers, everyone. We'll be back on Tuesday. The Athletic. <laughs>